Good morning, Doxa. Guys, as always, it's uh, always great to, to be together. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, you're new. Um, welcome again to the Doxa family. My name is Rob. Uh, I really, truly hope you feel like welcome and seen and, and loved. And uh, I would love the opportunity to meet you if we haven't had a chance to, to meet yet. But um, hey, before we open up the Bible, all right, I got a quick but exciting announcement for you. As Molly was talking about Easter, you probably all know we're about five weeks away from celebrating the biggest moment around the biggest person in the history of the world. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and with that, guys, we're going to do something a little bit different this year with our, our Easter celebration that on March 31st, First, which is Easter Sunday, rather than gathering here in, in this building for uh, three different services, we're going to be having one big servant at, or service at the Alliant Energy Center right down the road, okay? And so, a couple, yeah, it's going to be fun. And so, I wanted to let you know this so you can plan about it and mark your calendar for 10 a.m. on March 31st, Alliant Energy Center. On our website, guys, doxamadison.com. All the information you need regarding kind of that day is there, so you can take a look at that as, as the day gets closer. But let me just say this about um, the why, because maybe some of you are clapping, you're like excited, and the others of you are like, why would we do that? I, I really like this, this building, okay? The rock wall, all that stuff. Here's, here's the why. Um, guys, as we have been talking about Easter and thinking about and planning about Easter, uh, we were going to be having to have uh, three different services to accommodate everybody. And I remember about a month or so ago, I was sitting or standing outside in the, uh, whatever that atrium area is, and people were coming and going. And I found myself thinking, like, it's cool to have, like, two services because you can still see everybody if, you know, the passing. But the three kind of makes it more distant. And uh, I remember sitting there thinking, like, man, I kind of, I kind of miss the days like of the Sheridan where we just had like one service, right? And the whole family of Doxa was together in in just one room. That it's been about four years since we have just had one service with the entire Doxa family together in one room. And so since Easter is like the biggest celebration around the most significant person, we're going to, you know, do something different. And as I was talking with the elders, they were kind of like, man, I, I feel that too. And so we just decided let's, let's try and make it happen. And so guys, get ready for that. It's going to be awesome. We're going to be all together worshiping Jesus together in the same room. We're going to be opening up the word, seeing what God has to say to us. We're going to be celebrating baptisms. And so it's going to be an awesome day. But as we get up to that day, let me just say this, guys. This is an easy way for us to practice one of the marks of being a disciple that we talk so much about, that of, of being an inviter. And so leading up until this day, I, I, wanna, I want you just to consider this, okay? Just ask this question, like who's in your life? Like who has God divinely just kind of placed in your life, intersected your life with that, that needs the peace and the hope and the joy and the community and the love and the security that the gospel of Jesus brings? Who is that? Just be praying about that, asking God just to be like, who is the person right now that I could just invite? And I would encourage you to invite them, but not just invite them to come, but invite them to come with you and and with your family, okay? So be praying about that. But as I said, we have an FAQ sheet on our website with everything regarding like location, time, if you have questions about Doxa Kids, all of that. So in the weeks to come, check that out. Be praying about who you invite, and it's going to be a fun time celebrating Jesus. Sound good? Do I need to do the Nate thing? Someone say, sounds good. There we go. Okay. But guys, with that being said, I want to invite you to grab your Bible. All right. Find your way to Galatians chapter three. If you've been around, you know, we're six weeks into a 17 week study through the great book 
of Galatians. All right, and as we get into chapter two or three today, all right, Paul gets to the heart of the matter of his writing. That if you think back in chapters one and two, we've discovered that Paul, he's doing a lot of different things, he's talking about a lot of different things, but primarily he's kind of seeking to establish his authority as an apostle. These false teachers that were infiltrating the church that he started came in and they kind of said, hey, he's not a real apostle, don't listen to him. For the first two chapters, Paul has been establishing his authority as an apostle. But as we move into chapter three today, to a certain extent, Paul moves from kind of sharing and establishing his authority to now proclaiming his theology. And this is what we're going to see throughout this chapter and into chapter four. And, and let me just say this, guys. Sometimes when we, we come to the word theology, some of you that have been Christians for a while and you're one of those guys that just nerds out on theology, you're like, oh yeah, theology. A lot of us, maybe, you hear that word theology and it can be a little intimidating, right? But let me just say this, okay? When it comes to theology, I need you to understand that it doesn't need to be intimidating. All right, there's a famous definition of theology that goes like this, and I just want you to listen. That theology is nothing more than the ordinary rules of grammar and logic applied to the text of Scripture. All right, so just hear that. That theology is nothing more than the ordinary rules of grammar and logic applied to the text of Scripture. And so in other words, guys, if we can read and we can think logically, then we're able to come to grips with theology. And so theology is is really just simply the study of God through the scriptures. It's an attempt to really just understand God as he reveals himself to us throughout the Bible. So in this very real sense, every single one of us here today is a theologian. You know that about yourself? You are, in fact, a theologian. The question is, though, are you a good theologian? Are you a theologian that's rooted in the scriptures? Because you may have thoughts about God, and many people do. But if your thoughts about who God is and what God says and what God does are not found in Scripture, then you actually have wrong thoughts about God, and you are a very poor theologian. And this is why we put such a major emphasis on the Bible here, that we believe that this is actually a book that God wrote. And this is the, most, this is the only perfect thing on earth. And in this book, it's God's words to us to help us understand who he is, who we are, the world that we live in. And so for us, to, to, our goal really is to kind of use Scripture as the, the lens that we see all of reality through. And we primarily go back to the Bible, the Word of God, to answer all of our questions concerning eternity and God himself. That we don't primarily go to early church fathers, we don't primarily go to pastors or podcasters or even your parents, but we primarily need to be men and women of the word, right? And so every time we have a question about God and eternity and the things that are around us, what we do is we ask the question, what's the book, what's the chapter, what's the verse? We want to be people of the word. Now, I mention this because in the third and fourth chapters of Galatians, Paul clearly lays out his theology. And we read the very heartbeat of what he's communicating through this letter. And as we look at this, the big question that the Galatians are confused about and what Paul is trying to help them out with is essentially this. It's really a, a twofold question. And it's this. is how does someone get right with God and stay right with God? This is the question that the Galatians are, are, are asking. How does someone get right with God and stay right with God? 
that they had this understanding, the Judaizers came in, these false teachers, they got all confused and they're, they're wrestling with this. But how would you answer that? How does someone get right with God and stay right with God? What does your theology tell you? And before you say that verbally, do you have a book, chapter, and verse to back up your explanation of that? But as you think about it, let me just share this, okay? That question, how does someone get right with God and stay right with God, really revolves around what the Christian life is all about, okay? So I want to give you a picture of of what the Christian life is all about, and it's going to pop up here, okay? And so to be sure, guys, this is very overly simplified, but I can assure you that it's theologically true, okay? But the bookends of the Christian life are justification and glorification. You're going to learn some theological words today, that justification is really the starting line for the Christian life. And justification is an act of God where he pronounces a sinner to be righteous because of that sinner's faith in Jesus. That we are justified, meaning we're made righteous and declared righteous. We're forgiven of sin at the moment of our salvation when we put our faith in Jesus. And justification upon faith happens instantaneously. Listen to what the the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Just listen. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him... We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And so justification has to deal with God taking our sin and declaring us righteous through Jesus, which is an act of faith. And I need to tell you that the only way to be justified before God and the only way to be reconciled to God is through Jesus for the forgiveness of our sin. This is the gospel. Now, that's justification. Now, at the end of the Christian life, the other bookend is glorification. And glorification is God's final removal of sin from the life of a Christian so that they stand faultless before God in his glory for all eternity. All right? And this will happen when Jesus fulfills his promise to come back again. And upon that day when Jesus returns for the second time, he will eradicate Satan's sin, death, and hell forever. And in that day, we, as Christians, will be raised to eternal life in spiritual bodies. And this is what the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. Take a listen. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead will rise first. The dead in Christ will rise first. And guys, at this time, in this day that Jesus comes back, Our physical bodies will rise from the grave and we will be made into perfect spiritual bodies where God's honor and God's praise and his majesty and his holiness will be realized in us and we will have direct, unhindered access to God's presence forever. And this is the day that we long for, right, Christian? I mean, amen, get the band up here and let's just sing. This is it. We love this. This is the day that in the midst of the everyday stuff of our life where we're just getting kicked in the faith, kicked in the crotch, like we just want to go to heaven and be glorified, come Lord Jesus, okay? But this is what we wait for. And so the Christian life starts with justification. It ends with glorification. And this is typically how many people think about it, right? That the Christian life is come to Jesus in faith and then die and go to heaven. But guys, that's not it. All right, because in the middle of justification and glorification is sanctification. And while justification and glorification happen instantaneously, sanctification, this is kind of like, the Christian life is kind of like a double stuffed Oreo, the mega stuffed Oreos. You, hear, you have those, right? They're more healthy if you haven't had them. Try them, okay? But it's, it's like that. 
It's the long process of walking with Jesus in the everyday stuff of our life. That sanctification is the process by which a Christian becomes more and more like Jesus. And this is what the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter chapter, thir- or chapter 3, verse 18. He's saying it's growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Paul even elaborates this a, a little bit more in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, where he says the goal of the Christian life, which he's talking about sanctification, is to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And so sanctification is the Christian one who has been justified by grace through, through faith, dying more and more to sin and disobedience and becoming more and more like Jesus. And as Paul has been talking about all of this throughout Galatians so far, he's been hammering the truth. Hear this, that all of this happens, justification, sanctification, glorification, all of this is accomplished by the grace of God through Jesus. It's all about grace. Now, here's why I share this. As we get into chapter three today, Paul's addressing matters of justification and sanctification because here's the situation. All right, a group of false teachers called the Judaizers have infiltrated these young churches that Paul started in this region of Galatia, and they were teaching that it's not enough to just trust in the grace of Jesus for justification and sanctification. And they were saying that if you rely on grace alone, through faith alone, you become a Gentile sinner and you make Christ the agent of sin. This was the argument they had in Galatians chapter 2, verse 17. This is what the false teachers were saying. And so the false teachers would come in and they would tell these young Christians that your faith, that's great, but it has to be supplemented with works of the law. That trusting in what Jesus did for you has to be supplemented by what you can do for Jesus. And so at the heart of the false teaching in Galatia was this thought that it's God's work plus your work that equals salvation and righteousness in your life. And so it makes sense that this is why the Judaizers, they required circumcision. Chapter 2, verse 3. They also required dietary restrictions. This is chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. They required the keeping of holy days and festivals, which we'll come to in chapter 4, verse 10. And by requiring all of these things, these Judaizers, these false teachers, at least implied that by these works, the Galatians could contribute their part to the transaction of righteousness before God. And so the Judaizers, if you were able to talk to them and ask them the question that I asked you, how does someone get right with God and stay right with God? They would say, it's Jesus' work plus our work. That Jesus actually isn't enough, that we have to make sure we can do certain things so that make sure that we're right with God. But as far as the Apostle Paul is concerned, if you buy into this mingling of faith and works, you just nullify the grace of God and you step out of sync with the gospel of Jesus. That as close as it might sound to the truth and as close as it might sound to the apostles' teaching, it's another gospel which Paul says in chapter 1 is actually not a gospel at all, and it will only lead to the cursing of the person who embraces that. And so all that to say, what we're considering today is a massive deal. And so let's just read this section. We're going to read it all the way through, and then we'll go to work with with understanding it and applying it in our lives today. But Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. 
O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works of miracles among you do so by works of the law or hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith." So this is God's words to us today, and we're just going to work through this kind of verse by verse, but if you look back to where Paul starts in verse 1, right? Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? All right, now I want to remind you guys that this would be read at church, okay? And so Paul would write these letters, he would send them to the church, and then a leader would get that, he would stand up in front of the whole congregation, much like I am now, and be like, we're going to read this letter. And so Paul writes this letter, and they're like, hey, we got a letter from Paul. And they're like, really? What does he say? We love this guy. Hey, you idiots. (laughs) Wait, what? That's not Paul, right? But this is actually how J.B. Phillips, who is an old uh, Bible translator, how he translated it. Oh, dear idiots of Galatia, surely you can't be so idiotic, Okay? Now, we all have different personalities. There's some of you that are like, you're a feeler. You're like, that's not nice, right? That's not, that doesn't make me feel good. Let let me just clear this up for you, okay? Understand this. Paul is not trying to pick on them. All right, he's not trying to make them feel bad. He's trying to get their attention. And by saying this, he's saying, guys, this is crazy, This is insane. You're believing the wrong things. You need to wake up. You've become really bad theologians. The word foolish literally means senseless. That the Galatians, they were not using their minds and they stopped thinking about what they were being taught by these false teachers. And so Paul asked them, if you look back, who's bewitched you? He says, who's messing with you? Who's confusing you? Who's who's coming in and, and screwing things up for you? And this word, if you look back at bewitched, all right, it doesn't just concern witchcraft and the demonic, although it is that for sure. All right, that I'll, I'll tell you that any teaching that runs contrary to the gospel, any false teaching, guys, it's demonic in nature. You need to know that. It just is. That God speaks the truth of, the, to the people he loves, which is us, and then Satan, God's great adversary and our great enemy, comes and speaks a counter-truth, which is just lies to confuse us because he hates us. That Satan hates God, wants to destroy God, but he can't do that to God, so he has set his eyes on the people who bear the image of God, and he tries his best to lead us astray through false teaching so that we will be destroyed in the fires of hell. 
This is the role of Satan. And he's trying to confuse people. But that word bewitched, it's not just demonic, but it also points to the idea of, of like to, to charm or to fascinate to such an extent where it takes away your ability to resist. And Doxa, I need you to know this. This is in large part the world that we live in today. You just need to understand this. That people as a whole, and I'm not talking about non-Christians. Christians, Christians I'm, I'm talking to you. Are largely biblically illiterate. They don't know the scriptures. And so they don't have a true north. They don't have an absolute truth. And you know, there's some areas of the world where people are not biblically literate because they don't have access to the scriptures. In our country, it's not because of access, it's because of apathy. That we like to be our own God. We like to do what we like to do. And we're gonna write our own book instead of listening to God's book. But there's so many people that don't have a solid foundation of truth. And many people are just kind of wandering around through life until all of a sudden they have a professor or a podcaster who comes in and claims to have a truth, just like the Galatians, and they're seduced. They're seduced into false thinking. And guys, this false thinking leads many people away from God. And this false gospel, as Paul has been saying, it's not like a benign, neutral thing. It's actually a destructive thing. And Paul is kindly warning the people he loves in Galatia, and he's, God is kindly warning us that when we believe things that are contrary to who God is and what God says, it's not just benign, but it will destroy and lead us away from God. And as I was thinking about this, you know, I think if Paul was here and he kind of pulled up into Madison... Right, and he gathered together all the professing Christians, right, at the Lion Energy Center. He got everybody, all the Christians together. He's like, I'm Paul, I'm here, I got some things to say to you. Guys, I think that he might start off with a similar address. Oh, foolish Madisonians, who has bewitched you? And I think he would go into what he says at the end of verse 1. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. That Paul, he taught the Galatians the answer. He taught the Galatians the truth of life. That they literally saw Jesus. They saw Jesus up on the cross through his preaching. And they were saved. And Paul says, I told you all about Jesus. I told you how Jesus lived a perfect life. I told you how Jesus paid the ultimate price. I told you how Jesus gives the ultimate gift. I told you about Jesus' love and his grace that is for you. And you understood that you were a sinner and that he is a savior. And when I was with you, everything was good. You were looking to Jesus. You were loving Jesus. You were becoming like Jesus. But then I leave and all of a sudden, these false teachers come in and now you're all messed up. Because here's the issue. As these Judaizers show up, they say, you know what? We actually disagree with Paul. That coming to God and walking with God is not only about grace, but what you have to do is you need to have a works-based relationship with God because this is actually how it actually works with God. Paul was too afraid to tell you that because he wanted you all to like him, or maybe he wasn't smart enough to figure it out, but we know, and so this is what you need to do. And so we're here because we love you and we want to we teach you some things that are true. 
And we've actually brought a list of expectation. It's over there on my clipboard. We'll pass it out to everybody. But we have some inspectors here, and we're going to be judging your life. And we actually want to encourage you to judge each other's lives. And we want you to keep score about your life and how you live, good and bad. And we want you to actually keep the score of other people's lives on how they live. And we want you to keep an eye on other people because we're actually going to keep an eye on you because the essence of life with God is not about grace, but it's about works. This is what they were saying. And it's really the issue of legalism. And legalism, we've, we've talked a little bit about this, but it's simply just confidence in the works of our flesh for our standing with God. And since this is a huge issue in Galatians, I want to just spend just a moment talking about legalism. But if you know your Bible, you, you should know that legalism is actually not a word that's found in the Bible. But legalism is a term that Christians use to describe a doctrinal position emphasizing a system of rules and regulations for achieving both salvation and sanctification. That legalists believe in and demand a strict, literal adherence to rules and regulations. And doctrinally, it's a position essentially opposed to grace. That those who hold legalistic positions, they often fail to see the real purpose of the law. They don't understand it right. They're not reading the Bible the right way. Especially, they have a misunderstanding of the purpose of the Old Testament law of Moses, which was given to God to really just essentially be a giant neon arrow pointing us to our need for Jesus. That's what it was given for. And the truth is, guys, when it comes to legalism, many Christians can slip into this. Have you known anybody like that? These are the conversations that you get in and it always feels like you're on trial, right? They're asking you questions like, what do you really believe? How do you, be? you know, and it's just like, it's that type of conversation. But have you known people like that? That there are those who, who feel so strongly about non-essential doctrines that they will run others out of fellowship, not even allowing an expression of another viewpoint. That's legalism. And many legalistic Christians today, they make their error of demanding unqualified adherence to their own biblical interpretations, even their own traditions. For example, I've, I've talked to people in this church that have come from churches in Madison who, who walked in and felt that to be godly and very spiritual, you had to simply just avoid tobacco and alcohol and dancing in certain types of movies. That's how you knew you were really godly. And there's others who feel that godliness is all about singing a specific type of song or not playing a specific type of instrument or wearing certain things and dressing a certain way and acting a certain way. Guys, but the truth is that avoiding all of these things and doing some of these things is no guarantee of godliness. You, know, you, you need to understand that. People want to do all these things because we like to look at the outside. God loves to look at the inside. And so we can have all these things on the outside and maybe get the applause and the pat on the backs of people, but God sees our heart. And God says, this is nothing. Your outward stuff like that, that has nothing to do with my grace transforming you and sanctifying you. And the Apostle Paul, guys, in the book of Colossians chapter 2, the verse is going to come up here, he adamantly opposes legalism. Take a look at this. This is what Paul says. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world... Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. 
These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism. This is like self-denial and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so legalists may appear to be righteous and spiritual, but legalism ultimately fails to accomplish God's purpose because it's an outward performance instead of an inward change. And Paul says it makes no sense. And that's why he says, you foolish Galatians, you're not thinking right. And Paul is not mad. He loves these people, but he sees the danger of their ways. And so what he does is he seeks to help them come back to the truth, and he asks a series of questions. And as he asks these questions, he really just dismantles legalism and false teachings from the Judaizers. And the first question comes in verse 2. Take a look. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Okay, so Paul asked them, how did you receive the Holy Spirit? He's asking, like, how were you saved? How were you justified? Was it by you doing a bunch of things to get you right with God, or was it by God doing something for you through Jesus? And the answer is obvious. It's almost like a rhetorical question, but what Paul does here, guys, is he does what a good marriage counselor will do. How many of you guys are married? Okay, it's a decent number of you. I know that you're all happy, okay, but let's just think about someone that you know that they're struggling in marriage right now, okay? This would be some good advice to give them. But when you're meeting with a, with a couple that's struggling in marriage, all they want to do, typically, is talk about what they're frustrated with right now. And a good counselor will kind of step in and say, hey, okay, let's go back. Let's go back to the beginning of the relationship. What did you guys used to do early on? When you guys were in, like, in love and things were good, like, what did you used to do? And the couple was like, wow, oh, what? We prayed. We went for walks, we snuggled on the couch, we talked, and the counselor was like, okay, well, well, what do you do now? Well, um, we got our own chair, and we play games on our phones until we get tired of that, and then we argue about Fox News, okay? <laughs> like, and the counselor's like, hey, how about we go back, right? Like, that seemed to be working, right? But you've got distracted, you've gone off course. This is what the Galatians were doing. They were thriving. They were walking with Jesus. They got distracted. They went off course, and Paul is calling them back. And he's like, all right, let's think about it when you just became a Christian. So let's just do this. All right, if you're not a Christian, our desire for you is that you would become a Christian today. But if you are a Christian, the question is this. What was it like when you first had that relationship with Jesus? You think about that. I was thinking about that all week. Every time I thought about it, I can't help but smile. But what was it like? When you first had that relationship with Jesus, how did your Christian life begin? This is what Paul is asking the Galatians. Did your life with God begin because you observed rules and regulations? Did it finally begin after you like, attained a certain level in life because you were just so good and you tried so hard? Is that how it started? Or did it begin because you believed implicitly in Jesus? And of course, that is the answer. And Paul doesn't even wait for that answer to come about. He just asks another question because he believed that the answer to that question was so clear, it was so easy to understand. It started with Jesus. And if you look back, Paul understands that every believer possesses the Holy Spirit. He talks more about this in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, but 
he's, he's telling the, the Christian the truth that you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God in you. And the way in which the Spirit has come to indwell these Christians in Galatia and how the Spirit indwells us here as Christians in Madison is not by them living a certain way that pleased God. All right, they weren't kind of just like in like the arcade of life and just winning a bunch of games and collecting tokens and then came to the shop and was like, oh my gosh, I got enough for eternal life. I'll check, right? That's not what they did. They never had enough tokens. That's not how they got the Spirit. But it was because they realized that there was actually nothing that they could do to be right with God because of sin and they simply came to Jesus and God blessed them. even though they didn't deserve it. Guys, how many of you, God has blessed you and you don't deserve it? Two hands up for me, amen? This is how it works. This is grace. And in verse five, Paul reiterates the same thing. Take a look. Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So what this is, is this is basically verse 2 switched around. That in verse 2, Paul uses this question in relation to the recipient of the Spirit. And in verse 5, he uses it in relation to the giver of the Spirit. So in verse 2, if you look, he says, did you receive the Spirit because you observed the law? No. Then verse 5, did God give the Spirit because you observed the law? The answer is no. Guys, some of you here today, guys, I pray that you understand this. I pray that you understand this. Some of you have been coming around docs, you're trying to figure it out. I love that you're here. But I need you to understand this, guys. It is not about you. Do you understand that? It's not about you. It's not about you trying to match everybody else in this room. It's not you trying to like pretty up your life. It's not you trying to fix a bunch of stuff. It's all about Jesus that you can't do enough good and you can't make enough changes to earn God's favor, to earn God's blessing, to earn God's salvation. Guys, that's Jesus' job. He does it. And He does it all. And on the cross, in His last victory breath, He says, it is finished. That the only thing left for us to do is to come to Jesus in faith and just say thank you. Amen? Amen? This is it. This is the Gospel. We come to Jesus And I would beg you, implore you to please come to Jesus. Let him justify you, to give you the Holy Spirit and to seal you for eternity as a child of God because I need you to understand you're not a child of God without the saving work of Jesus. You're an enemy of God. And so what Paul says is that you started with grace. You were sealed with the Spirit of God. So now the second question, verse 3. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? All right, Paul basically just asks, like, how are you growing in maturity and maintaining a good standing with God? All right, so he starts off with addressing in verse 2 the idea of justification, and now he moves in to the issue of sanctification. And Paul says, are you seriously going to say now, like after God has saved you by grace through faith, not by the works of the law, are you really going to say, hey God, thanks for getting me started, but I got this now. Like, hey, God, like, I know you started me off, but hey, I'm actually good. I got this book. I don't know if you see how thick it is. It's a systematic theology book. I read it. I read a ton of stuff by the early church fathers, too. I don't really even need to pray anymore because my theology answers all my questions. I don't really even need a relationship. I'm good. 
I've got it all figured out. I've got my routine. I've got my tradition. I've got my convictions. I've got my interpretations. I've got my way of doing things. And so thank you, God, for getting me started. The training wheels are off, and I'm off to the races. I'm good. Paul's like, that's not the way it works. Some of you guys, you view your Christian life like that. Thank you, Jesus, for tipping me into the family. Now I'm at the steering wheel, and I'm going hard. Paul's like, that is not how it works. He says, you started in the Spirit, you'll be sustained in the Spirit, and you will finish by the Spirit. It's the power of God, not your own. And Paul says, you just have to be crazy to think that having began your life with God by faith and the grace of Jesus and given the Holy Spirit, that you would continue in the process of sanctification any other way. And if you look back, he talks about the flesh. Right? And, and by flesh, okay, he's not talking about physical flesh. Rather, he's referring to what we'll get into in, in chapter 4, where he's talking about the spirit and the flesh being two opposed and opposite forces. And so the flesh, as Paul is talking about, is really just the old you. It's, it's Rob B.C. It's the old self. And this old self, when Paul talks about the flesh throughout the New Testament, it's, he's talking about the old self which just cherishes independence. In, in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, Paul says this, that the mind is set on the flesh, it's hostile to God. It does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. And so the flesh is the autonomous self that's all about me. And guys, here's the thing. The flesh, this autonomous self, this is one of the most highly valued and highly prized thing in our culture today. Isn't it? You be you. I'm my own man. I'm going to do my own thing. Because this is the flesh. The flesh is so in love with its personal power of self-determination that it does not and cannot submit to God's absolute authority. And I just need you to see this, guys. Christian, please listen to me. Maybe you're sitting here and be like, tell those non-Christians, Rob. Paul's not talking to non-Christians. He's talking to you, Christian. He's talking to me. And he's writing to Christians who are now in grave danger of trying to live the Christian life in a way that nullifies grace and leads to destruction. And the point of this verse is that you must go on in the Christian life the same way that you started it. And so since we began by the work of the Spirit, we must go on relying on the Spirit. And the essence of the Galatian heresy is the teaching that you begin the Christian life by faith and that you grow in the Christian life by your works drawing on your own power to make yourself and give yourself the contribution to Jesus for salvation and sanctification. One modern form of heresy that relates to this, you probably have said it, it's been said to you, but it's this statement. God helps those who help themselves. You heard that? You said it? Don't do it anymore. Especially if you're a Christian and you're a member of Doxa, because it's just a heretical statement. It's not true. If you buy into that way of advancing in the Christian life, you've put works where faith belongs. That faith is the only response to God's word which makes room for the Spirit to work in us and through us. Flesh, on the other hand, is the insubordinate, self-determining ego which in religious people responds to God's word with not reliance on the Spirit but with reliance on self. So Doxa, I hope that you can see that the essential mark of a Christian 
is not how far you've progressed in sanctification, but on what you're relying on to get there. Are you striving for sanctification by works? Or are you striving for sanctification by faith? Are you advancing in the life of love by the power of the Spirit, or are you trying to love in the power of the flesh, that is, by your own works? Paul is hammering this idea that we started with in week one in chapter one, that grace, it's all about grace, that grace is the way to life and grace is the way of life. Third question, I gotta hustle because I'm way out of time. Why did you suffer persecution? Verse four, did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? All right, Paul takes them back once again to when they were actually first following Jesus and he reminds them that it was actually painful for them to come to Jesus. I mean, how many of you, you've experienced this? When you became a Christian, there was immediately some opposition. Your parents were like, are you crazy? What kind of cult are you hanging out with on campus? Right? Your friends, they don't understand it. They start rejecting it. And it's hard. You get resistance. But in the midst of this, if you think back to your story, the grace of God sustains you. And the reason that the grace of God sustains you is that so you could remain in the grace of God and be a demonstration of the grace of God in the face of those who know nothing about the grace of God. And so it's that song that we sing, I've witnessed it, I'll witness to my family, I'll witness to the world. It's the grace of God that sustains us and empowers us to be able to do this. And what Paul says is you love Jesus, but the people around you didn't love Jesus, and so they didn't love you because you love Jesus, but you still love Jesus, but all of a sudden you're not so excited about loving Jesus because you're caving into the pressures around you. Doc, so let me just tell you this. In your life, there are always going to be pressures around you. There are going to be people and issues that press on you. And it's going to be issues of politics. It's going to be issues of gender. It's going to be issues of sexuality. It's going to be issues of morality. It's going to be all these different issues. And all these issues, you experience it now, are going to roll along in your life. And it's almost going to be like you're standing on the shore and there's like a, like a tidal wave coming and you're like, oh my gosh, all this pressure, it's going to be crazy. And you're going to be like, is this thing going to swallow me up and just suck me out to sea? The answer is no. Because the grace of God sustains us and holds us firm. And this is what Paul is saying. He's like, you guys were in the face of such major persecution because you believed and embraced the grace of God. Stand in it now. Stand in it. He will keep you. You started with grace and you suffered because of grace. Now stand firm in that grace and don't cave to false teachings. Doc, so that's the same thing I'd say to you. And to continue to hammer home his theology of grace, he then stops by asking questions and he gives two examples of Moses and Abraham. In verses 6 through 9, he starts with Abraham and the question is essentially this, is how was Abraham justified? Okay? If you look at verses 6 through 9, Again, if you know your Bible, you know Abraham is a massive figure in the history of the world. Not just for Christians, but for Jews, for Muslims. He's just a towering figure in the history of the world. And we learn of Abraham's story back in the book of Genesis, where God chose Abraham, and he blessed Abraham, and he said that he would bless him and all of his descendants to bless the world. And he was the first of the Jewish people, and so the Jewish people who were his descendants felt really good and proud of their physical descendancy. Descendancy? Is that a word? That sounds good. Okay, of Abraham, all right? And so they felt like, some of you are like, that's not a word, Rob. You talk to me later. Okay, but they felt really good because they showed up 
God showed up to their father Abraham and he said that I was going to bless him and now he blesses us too. And so the Jews thought, well, if our family gets the blessing, our family gets the inheritance, we're set. But the big question is who are truly the children of Abraham? Is it the biological descendants or his spiritual children? This is the debate happening. And so Paul says in verse 6, look, Abraham believed God, had faith, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And Paul's point is that Abraham didn't obtain blessing through works. He obtained that through grace from God, through faith in God, that he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so Paul says, even Abraham, the guy that you really, really respect, the, the Judaizers really, really respect, even he knew of and experienced and lived by the grace of God, not the works of the law. But what the false teachers were doing in this time, they were using Abraham. And here's how they were telling their story. Abraham was the first of the Jewish guy. And you know how we know that he loved God? Because of what he did to, for himself and what he did to all the male descendants in his family. We know that he loved God. We know that he was serious about his relationship with God because he circumcised himself and all the male descendants in his household. And we know that if, as he did this, it's because he truly loved God, that God really chose him as he was following the Mosaic law. And they would deduce that, therefore, if you want to have a relationship with God, you need to follow the pattern of Abraham who circumcised himself. You need to do something. You need to get circumcised. You need to get baptized. You need to start giving more. You need to be in, in high church attendance. You need to do a bunch of stuff because this is what it's all about. This is how you know you're right with God. But guys, Paul is almost just like, this is laughable. Because he relates to Abraham. He's like, Abraham's real story is God came looking for this guy who was just a pagan, called him, blessed him, and it was some 13 or 14 years later that Abraham then got circumcised. And so the question is, when did Abraham become the one who was counted as righteous and accepted by God? Was it when he had faith, or was it when he had the human work of circumcision? Answer, faith. Paul's like, all of this is just crazy. Even Abraham knew it was about faith. You're twisting the truth. And then he wraps up in verses 10 and 14, looking at Moses, another towering figure. And the last question is essentially this. What's the point of the law that God gave to Moses? And this was really the death blow to the Judaizers' false teaching as their theology was largely based on the Mosaic law. But if you look back to verses 10 through 14, Paul says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be any, everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So Paul says that the law shows us God's perfection. That God is a perfect person. Heaven is a perfect place. And to get there, the entrance requirement is righteousness, which is either your perfection in following the law or trusting in Jesus' per per perfection in your place. Those are the two options. And in the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch, there are, these are the books of the law. There were 613 different laws, different commands. And if you didn't do them perfectly, you are cursed. You are cut off from God. And the point and the purpose of these laws was not to bring cursing, but to point to blessing. Because the law shows us our sin and shows us that we can't be perfect, but we long for a perfect one. Enter Jesus the perfect Savior, 
And the law, as Paul says in verses 13 and 14, points us to the reality that we can't be perfect, but we have a reason to celebrate because Jesus is perfect for us. And he goes on to quote Deuteronomy 21, explaining how Jesus took our curse of sin for us by hanging on a tree. It's the cross of Jesus that is front and center here. And he says it's all about his work, it's not about your work. So if you want to try and work for righteousness, go ahead. You got the list of 613 commands, do that perfectly and you'll be fine. Everybody knows you can't do that, you need Jesus. He's the perfect one. Guys, this is how beautiful the gospel is. Grace is the way to life and grace is the way of life. And so let me end with this. How does someone get right with God and stay right with God? For those of you who are not Christians, I need you to understand that Jesus is the only way for you to be justified before God for your sin. I don't want you to be confused about what we're trying to do here. We're not trying to get you into a connection group. We're not trying to get you into the women's conference. We're not trying to get you into foundations or intro to doxa. We're trying to get you into Christ. We can only go so far. My job is simply to open up the Bible and tell you the truth. Your job is to figure out how to respond to that. And I implore you, I beg you to come to Jesus in faith. It's the only way. Then you can truly sing these songs about God being a father. God's not your father without being justified. And you can truly sing about being a child of God because God, you're not a child of God without being justified. You need Jesus. Come to Jesus today. This is what this is all about. This is what your life is about. This is actually why God has brought you here today. Come to Jesus. And for those of you who are Christians, Paul is reminding us that walking with God, the process of sanctification, is fueled by grace through the Spirit. And so the big question for us is how do we grow in godliness and live in grace by the Spirit? If you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 12. This is how we'll end. So much I could say, but I want to give you one thing. Because sanctification does not come about by following rules and regulations. That's what Timothy Keller calls like moralistic behaviorism. It's not sanctification. Hear me on this. Sanctification is the Spirit of God through the Word of God changing your heart and mind into the likeness of Jesus. And when that happens, guys, God gives us new desires, new ways of thinking, new perspectives, new ability to love, a new humility, a new just perspective on it. Is that it? You've experienced that? You strive, you strive, you strive. Really not doing anything. You fall at the feet of Jesus, and all of a sudden he makes you new. He justifies you, he gives you the spirit of God, and all of a sudden you have different motives, you have different desires, you have different loves. But this is how we grow in godliness. Take a look at Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. He's saying because of the gospel of Jesus, because Jesus came and he loved us and he died for us and he rose for us. He's because of all that he gives, because of his great mercies. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
Christian, here is what sanctification looks like in your life. It's not following rules and regulations. It's dying. That when Paul wrote this, and he's talking about a living sacrifice, the people would have understood that, oh, he's talking about putting an animal up on the altar and killing it and lighting it on fire and making a sacrifice to God that would be pleasing for sin. And Paul's like, hey, no, 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 Jesus is our final sacrifice. No more of the killing of animal stuff. It's your job now to climb up on the altar. And I want you to climb up on the altar. And I want you to die. And I want you to light yourself on fire. And everything that is not of Jesus, let it burn away. And it's just Christ in me. Why are there so many Christians that have a good talk but not a Jesus-like life? Because dying's painful. What's in your life right now that is keeping you from being who Jesus died and rose to make you? I'm going to give you a minute to just get with God and crawl up on that altar and just say, what is it? My sin, my perversion, my pride, and just ask the Spirit of God for his empowering grace to put that to death. We're going to take communion. During these last two songs, after you lay that down at the cross, there's a chance that you might feel like a little condemnation as you think about that thing that needs to burn away in your life. As you get up to take communion, you grab that bread and you dip it in that juice and you're reminded of Jesus' blood and body that was shed for you. And the truth of 1 John 1, 9, where Jesus says, I'm faithful and just to forgive all your sin that you confess. You grab hold of that truth and you walk in that truth and you sing in that truth and you embrace what Paul says in Romans 8, 1, that there is now therefore no, no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Get before God. Crawl up on that altar right now. What needs to die? Confess that sin. And then go take communion and celebrate and ask the Spirit of God to help you walk faithfully.